So this morning we continue in this gospel according to Matthew. And thus far as a church, we have covered some pretty well-known passages and events in Jesus' life. We have talked about, for example, his lineage, and then his birth, and then the visit of the Magi last week. And then to come, starting next week in chapter 3, we're finally going to get into John the Baptist, which will lead us up to Jesus' ministry. But between all of that, what we get here this morning in God's word is these three very short accounts about some things that happened when Jesus was still a child. And to be honest, it's interesting that these stories are even here. Because if you remember, as we said in week one on this gospel according to Matthew, remember Matthew in this book is recording the gospel, the the good news of Jesus and what Jesus did. And when we hear that, we know or we should know that the gospel is the good news of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. And it's about how sinners like you and I can be okay and loved by God by grace through faith in what Jesus did alone. And so, and so that's the gospel. And when we hear that, we probably understand how some things we've already covered in Matthew, again, like Jesus being born and him being worshipped by the Magi, we probably understand how those fit into the gospel. And we definitely get how what's to come in Matthew about Jesus' ministry and miracles and especially his death and resurrection, we get how that fits into the gospel. And yet, what what I do think is that at first... What is so weird in a way is honestly, and this is the question I kept having as I was studying this this week, the question is, okay, so we get all of that, but why did Matthew use space in his book to write these stories about the gospel? And asking that is actually a legitimate question to ask because remember, back then it was a big deal to write anything down 2,000 years ago. Any writing was very intentional and it was a serious thing because it was so expensive to write things down. And not only that, but these disciples of Jesus, when they were writing these gospel books about their Jesus, they were very careful to include only what they thought was really important and what it helped for people to know. And so again, the the question is, well then why include these three short stories about this flight to Egypt, about this death of all these Bethlehem boys, and then about Jesus' family living in Nazareth? And in brief, the answer which we'll come to see this morning is that yes, not only did these things happen in history, but also the reason these stories belong in this book about the gospel of Jesus is because... And in their own way, each one of these stories is part of the good news. And that's because they each fulfill something that was written in the Old Testament. And it's because by doing so, essentially, they're each going to show us something unique about Jesus. And quickly, just before we even really begin, I want you to see that it's actually quite clear that that's what's going on in our passage. Because notice, there's three stories here, right? That's why the ESV has three clear sections and paragraphs. And yet, at the end of each story, notice, Matthew intentionally has an Old Testament reference. Maybe you heard that. And verse 15 is a quote from the Old Testament. And then look down another in verse 18. And then another at the end of verse 23. And so the point is, once again, this book is the gospel about the good news of Jesus according to one of Jesus' disciples, Matthew. 
And by these stories being in here, Matthew therefore assumes that they're part of the good news. And finally, though, they're part of the good news because they fulfill something in the Old Testament. But even more so, these things will show us, these stories will show us things about Jesus. Which means, very practically for you and me then this morning, what we'll do is we're going to be reading these stories and our goal is to appreciate that they're in God's word, but especially we're going to be seeing what they show us about Jesus and the gospel. And so that is our goal this morning. But all that said, that then brings us to our outline for how we'll go through this passage of scripture together. And so as we've said, there are clearly three stories here. And so for us, we're going to just have three sections this morning with each story being its own section. And so for three, three sections. And as for what we'll see in each one of those sections, we'll actually just reveal that more as we go, especially as we see how Matthew interprets these using the Old Testament. But basically, just so you know, for each section, we're going to have the same pattern. We're going to spend some time just looking at what happened in history, and then we're going to see how that fulfills something in the Old Testament. And then for each, we're going to see what it shows us about Jesus and what it means for us. And so brothers and sisters, that's where we're going. In summary, three stories fulfilling the Old Testament and in each something about our Savior and what it all means for us. But all that said, let's then begin our first section then together, church, and dive into this first story here. And for this, we'll be in verses 13 through 15. And remember, this is now continuing the story from last week, if you were here. So Herod sent the Magi on their way to find where Jesus is, but the Magi don't return to Herod. That's where we left off in verse 12, which then leads to our three stories this morning, which all in a way center around Herod and his angry response to what's going on. But that said, so let's now read the first account. And for this, again, we'll start with the story and then we'll see how it fulfills the Old Testament. So first, look down your Bibles and we'll just read the story itself. Verses 13 through the middle of verse 15. Now, when they had departed... Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. And so we'll stop there. And so as you can see, all this happened because the angel says, quote, Herod is about to search for the child for Jesus to destroy him. And so this earthly king Herod is wanting to destroy the true king Jesus. And because of that, Joseph is told to take Mary and Jesus and flee to Egypt. And historically, fleeing to Egypt kind of made sense, not only because Egypt was obviously a big nation at the time, but also because back then, most people think there were probably still around one million Jews still living in Egypt. And so that's where the angel tells Joseph to take his family and go. And, and when is he supposed to stay there till? Well, first, obviously implied, he's supposed to stay there until the threat is gone. But specifically, how will Joseph know that the threat is gone? Well, notice what the angel actually says in verse 13. Quote, he says, flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. And quickly, that, that's often not as talked about when we talk about these early years of Jesus. But that's actually quite important. Because that means Joseph is told to flee. And yes, he obeys. And his obedience here is supposed to be a good example. But also, Joseph was told to go there and basically wait until an unknown time. 
Specifically until God through the angel told him to leave again. He was essentially, Joseph was waiting on God's word. And he had no idea how long that waiting would be. But anyway, so that's what Joseph is told. And then in verse 14, he finally does it. He obeys and they go down to Egypt. And so that's what happened in history, right? And it really happened. And to, be, and to be clear, this was no easy task for Joseph and Mary with this small child, Jesus. But they did it in obedience to the Lord. And of course, so that the child, Jesus, would be protected from Herod's anger. And so that's what happened. But that happening still isn't the main point of why this story is actually here in God's word at least not according to the inspired writer Matthew. Because sure, that's what happened in history. And why? Well, to protect the child Jesus. But still, what's an even deeper reason why? And just so you know, asking for a deeper reason here makes sense because remember, biblically, even Herod's anger is under God's sovereign hand. And we know that because it's the Old Testament itself that tells us very clearly, Proverbs 21.1, The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He, the Lord, turns it wherever he will. God turns the king's hearts wherever he wants. And so, yes, the immediate answer as to why this fleeing to Egypt happens is to protect the child Jesus from Herod. But still, we and Matthew can ask, but why does God even allow this to happen? This is the Messiah. Why why does God even allow Herod to get angry in his heart and then search for Jesus and then have them go all the way down to Egypt? Well, the answer, Matthew tells us, is now is is what is said in the second half of verse 15. And here is where we get our first Old Testament quotation this morning. So now look down at verse 15. So all that happened with Joseph and his family fleeing to Egypt. And then in the middle of verse 15, Matthew says this. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. And so quickly on this, as many, uh, many of you know this because you were here, but in the middle of December, only two months ago, in one of our Christmas messages, we had a whole message that I titled, Out of Egypt, I Called My Son, where I tried to explain this one quote clearly in one full message. And so if you are more interested in what we're about to talk about in this quote, which is from Hosea 11.1, you can go ahead later and listen to that message. But for our sakes this morning, we'll just basically summarize what's going on here. And so why does Matthew quote this verse from Hosea 11.1 1, and say that Jesus going down to and coming out of Egypt fulfills it? Well, it's because in Hosea 11.1, 1, God was talking about the people of Israel because God's son in the Old Testament was his people of Israel. And that makes sense because therefore this out of Egypt idea is referring to Israel's exodus out of Egypt. And you probably know that story. And so the idea in Hosea, just so you know, originally clearly was, out of Egypt, I, God, called my son the people of Israel. And so that was Hosea chapter 11 originally. And yet, what we also see in Hosea chapter 11 originally, and really in the whole Old Testament, if you know the Bible at all, is that God's son, though, the people of Israel, after being delivered, man, they didn't really follow the Lord. Yes, he called them out of Egypt, but then they kept not acting like God's son and they kept being unfaithful to their God. And so Matthew knows that, 
right? He knows that about Hosea 11.1 and God's son being Israel. He knows how Israel kept failing and he knows how God promised though that one day he'd do something about all of that. And then the point is, knowing all that, he looks at Jesus and, and, and Jesus, who we know already from this book, is the Savior, the King, the Son of David, the blessing of the nations, and even God himself. Matthew looks at Jesus, and he's basically saying, yes, Israel was God's son out of Egypt that he called, but that was all a picture pointing to this, to this moment, because now the true Son of God, the fulfillment of the people of Israel is here. That's Matthew's point. And really, that then means that the Bible here is saying, just so we all on the same page, that literally in history, Herod got angry and Joseph fleed and went all the way down to Egypt. And then him and his family eventually came out of Egypt. Think about it. All so that this verse from Hosea 11.1 could be fulfilled. (laughs) Meaning all that happened so that Jesus could be seen as the obedient son of God and the fulfillment of and the true Israel. And, and one more thing on this in case this is confusing. What will help is remember something fulfilled in the Bible is not always a one-to-one correlation. Because to be clear, this does not mean that Matthew is saying that when Hosea wrote what he wrote, he was thinking about Jesus as a child. Instead, the idea of fulfillment in the Bible is that Hosea 11.1 was written about Israel, inspired by God. And then, Hosea 11.1's ideas about Israel and God's people and him promising to do something about it, those were filling up and filling up until the final fulfillment arrived. And that was all leading to the coming of Jesus, the true Israel, the only obedient son of God. Or to say most simply, when this story happened in history, it fulfilled out of Egypt, I called my son. And so that's his first story, which leads us then, as we'll do for each section, to consider one thing that shows us about Jesus and what it means for us. And so first, concerning Jesus, so I know that may have sounded heady, and like a lot, but really, and again, go listen to that message from December if you want more on this, but really, this was a huge statement from Matthew, who, remember, was ethnically Jewish himself. Because what then does this show us about Jesus? Well, again, it really does show us that Jesus, according to the apostles, is the true Israel. Jesus is the true Israel, meaning Jesus is the true Son of God, and he's the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament people of God. And as for what that means, in brief, it means that everything about Israel in the Old Testament was truly always pointing to Jesus, really. Everything about Israel, including their exodus, including their laws and worship and stories and sacrificing, including their prophets, priests, and kings, including their temple and their land, including their very existence as the people of God, it was always meant to find its climax, fulfillment, substance, ultimate reality, choose whatever term you want, in Jesus, in his coming, in his gospel, which therefore very practically then means for you and me that if we want to be part of the people of God then, or if we want to worship God, or if we want to be saved and delivered by God, all things that Israel foreshadowed in the Old Testament, then now the Bible's point here is go to Jesus. 
And again, that was a big statement back then, just like that's a big statement in our world today, right? Because back then, think about it, so many of Matthew's readers, original readers, were ethnically Jewish. And often for them, we know that they thought they were on God's side simply because of their race. And still today, often people think in a similar way, right? We can think that, people can think they're on God's side just because of their upbringing or because they were raised in a church or because they were baptized as a baby or anything like that. But, but this out of Egypt, I called my son, quote, does put an end to all of that type of thinking. <laughs> because in this one quote, it does mean that it, it doesn't, all that stuff doesn't apply. Instead, the true son of God, the true son in God's family has come. And so, if you want to be in God's family, you need to know him. <laughs> or to say it another way, the true fulfillment of God's people has come. And so if you want to be in God's people, you need to know him. It really is all about Jesus. And by telling this story, that's what Matthew is getting at. Intentionally, and I think brilliantly, Matthew is saying all of that by taking Hosea 11.1 and applying it to this story and Jesus. So that's our first section and story this morning, brothers and sisters, which now though leads us to our second section. And now here we're going to be in verses 16 through 18, and we'll look at this tragic account of the killing of the many boys in the city of Bethlehem. And hearing that, let's be clear, this story, out of all three of these stories this morning, is honestly the hardest to see at first how in the world we can say that this has any part of the good news. And so to begin, let me, let me just say, make it clear that what we're about to read is not good news in itself. Right? But by any means, as real children were killed, it's awful. And yet, it is Matthew himself who, as we'll see, tells this story and then quotes a strange Old Testament text all to show us that what happened was truly tragic and it also, though, points us to something about Jesus. And therefore points us to the gospel in a unique way. And I know that doesn't really make sense yet, but I hope it does by the time we're through with this story. But anyway, so let's dig in here together. And like last time, we'll first just read what happened in the story, and then we'll see what it fulfills. And so to start just on the story, now look down at just verse 16. Verse 16, Matthew continues. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And so once again, this story centers around Herod and particularly at how he's furious that the Magi didn't return to him. And in such anger, what does he do? Well, he tragically orders all the boys two years old or under in the area of Bethlehem to be killed. And now, as for how many boys this was, we are not obviously sure the exact number. But what we do know is that Bethlehem and that area wasn't that large at that time. And so most likely, scholars think this was probably around a dozen boys or so. But still, no matter the exact number, this is awful. And to be clear, Matthew records this in such a way with the upcoming quote about weeping and lamentation to show that what is happening here is supposed to remind us how nasty our world can be, and, and it can be. I mean, the fact that a king made a choice to straight up kill a dozen or so boys because his power was threatened is straight up evil. 
And so that really happened in history. Herod had all these boys killed in Bethlehem because of his fear of Jesus. Which leads us, though, then to ask, but again, why, though, is this here? Why did Matthew record this? And the answer, as we're going to see this morning, all these stories is yes, because it actually happened, but more so, the answer is because Matthew sees this story, too, as fulfilling something. And what is it? We'll now look at verses 17 and 18. So that happens in history And now verses 17 and 18. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, as I said, this quote isn't only hard to understand how this is good news, but also, again, it is strange that Matthew would quote this verse out of all the Old Testament. And I say that because everyone who studied this agrees this actually isn't a quote which originally was about physical little children being killed. It wasn't. Instead, this is a quote from Jeremiah 31. And in context back then, the idea of Rachel weeping for her children was the fact that the people of Israel in the 6th century BC, they were heading into exile for their sins. And that's basically what the whole book of Jeremiah was about. And so, back in Jeremiah, in context, the quote was saying that Rachel, symbolized from the book of Genesis, was weeping when her children, the people of Israel, were exiled out of the land. And so I hope that makes sense. That, that's the quote. It's, because, it's weeping because Israel's going into exile. And then, Matthew, though, takes that quote, and he says, this Bethlehem slaughtering of these boys fulfills that. And so if you're tracking, that's, that's weird. And so the question we have to ask is, okay, well, what in the world does that mean? And, and, and again, why is this even in God's word? Right? Especially in this book about the gospel of Jesus. And the answer is, if you know your Bibles, well, what you also may know that, as I said, this quote is from Jeremiah 31. And do you know what also is very famously in Jeremiah 31? Well, Jeremiah 31 has the most famous promise in the Old Testament about the new covenant. The new covenant. And Matthew assumes his readers know that. And I know for us, we may not know that right away. But this is where the New Testament authors are very intentional. Because think of it this way. So Matthew knows this quote from Jeremiah 31 about Israel going into exile and weeping because of that. But he also knows and assumes his readers will know that what, what followed that weeping in Jeremiah 31? Well, the promise from God that he'd one day come and deal with such weeping in the new covenant. And as for what that new covenant was in Jeremiah 31, this new relationship with God, the Bible says that that is when God says he will give his people new hearts. The Bible says that's when God will totally and forever forgive his people so that their sins are remembered no more. The Bible says that's when God's people, all his people in the covenant will truly know God. And the question then is, when though will that happen? And that's what Matthew is answering. Because Matthew is saying, This Bethlehem weeping over these boys was fulfilling the Old Testament weeping for exile. And this is where, again, we know that fulfillment doesn't have a one-to-one correlation always because it isn't that Jeremiah predicted that these Bethlehem boys would be killed. 
Rather, the idea was, okay, there was weeping then in exile. And then there was real weeping here in Bethlehem when these boys were killed. And what connects them? Well, that after the weeping comes the new covenant. And the point then is, if the weeping here in Bethlehem happened and it fulfilled the Old Testament weeping, and if you're tracking, what does that mean? Well, it means that the new covenant is finally coming. It means that the new way to have lasting sin forgiven, a new heart relationship with the living God has come, and it has come in the coming of Jesus. That's Matthew's point. I know it's, it's, it's not easy to see that for us, but it is really there in God's word. Which leads us then to what that shows us about Jesus and what it means for us. And so first, what does this show us about Jesus? Well, again, very clearly it shows us that Matthew knows that Jesus is the one who brings the new covenant. Jesus brings the new covenant. Meaning if you read Jeremiah 31, which promises sins being remembered no more, having a new heart, really knowing the living God, God is saying here through Matthew, if you want that, look to Jesus. He's the fulfillment of all that. Which then obviously means for you and me that that's how we're to understand this idea of a new covenant with God as well. We're to understand that yes, there is real weeping in the world, weeping because of sin, That was the context in Jeremiah 31. Israel is exiled because they're sinned. And we know there's weeping just because of evil things in the world. Like Herod's slaughtering of these Bethlehem boys. And so we are to understand brokenness and sin and the evil in this world and in our hearts. But also, what's the answer to that? Well, the new covenant in Jesus. Which shows us, by the way, now that we've kind of come full circle on this story, it shows us why then this story and this quote then therefore can truly be said to point us to good news, to the gospel. Because again, the story in itself here isn't good news. What happened in Bethlehem with these boys was tragic and awful. But still, Matthew records this because although the weeping and death was awful, yet it points us to the new covenant coming in Jesus. And practically then for you and me, we need to make sure that we each do think personally about all this and know that this is really good news available to you and to me. Because again, this new covenant that God promised was about truly and forever having your sins removed, being made new, knowing the living God. And so the Bible here is saying, just again, if you really want that, if you think you can't have that, you can, because the answer isn't about being a certain race. It isn't about being a, having a particular upbringing. It isn't about being good enough or going to church enough or praying enough or anything like that. The answer Matthew is saying to being in the new covenant is Jesus. <laughs> he brings the new covenant. And Jesus himself, we all know, said this clearly because, and we talk about this whenever we say the Lord's Supper. Remember, Jesus is the one who said about his death, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And to be clear then, this means that your goodness doesn't get you into the new covenant with God. Doesn't work like that. Nor though, can any of your sins be reasons why you can't be in the new covenant with God. Instead, the new covenant centers on Jesus. If you do not know him, you are not in the new covenant. You are not actually in a relationship with the living God. But if you do know him, you are. And not because of you, but because of him. And then you receive by grace all the promises that flow from the covenant. And so that's our second section in story this morning. 
Which finally leads us to our last story here. And, and so I know this particularly in Matthew has probably been a lot this morning. But now we will end with this last story here in Matthew chapter 2. And interestingly, really, this is the last detail of all of Jesus' childhood and teenage years and early adult life in the whole book of Matthew. And for this, we're going to be in verses 19 through 23. And as usual, we'll read the story first, and then we'll talk about what it fulfills. And so first, just look down at verse 19 through the middle of verse 23. Verse 19 through the middle of verse 23. But when Herod died, behold... An angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. And we'll stop there. And so remember, Joseph was told in our first story this morning to stay in Egypt until he was told to leave. And now here, he's told to leave. And when he does so, first he goes back to the land of Israel in general, but then because Herod's son Archelaus is reigning in the region, God tells him to go to Galilee, which if you're unfamiliar with Israel, that's the northern region in Israel and it's more remote than southern Israel because southern Israel had Jerusalem. And so they go to Israel and then they go to Galilee and then finally Matthew is specific in verse 23 to say, quote, and they went and lived in a city called Nazareth. All right, so that is what happened in history. Jesus' family goes from Egypt to Israel, specifically to Galilee, and then they live in the city called Nazareth. And Why? Does Matthew record this? Well, again, because it really happened. But also, and finally for us this morning, he gives us one last Old Testament reason. And so now let's finish the chapter looking at verse 23 one more time. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. So let me just tell you right away that that quote is never found in the whole Old Testament. Never. The other two quotes from Matthew this morning were, but that exact quote isn't. Ever. And so the question is, what is going on here? And to answer that first, let's be very clear, Matthew knows that he's quoting something that verbatim actually isn't in the Old Testament. And in fact, if you look closely, that's why people think he says, as you can see, that this was said by the prophets, plural here, not just by the prophet, like he usually writes. Because Matthew's point then is, yes, one prophet never said this in one verse in the Old Testament, but when you take everything the prophets said about the Messiah in the Old Testament, one thing they said is this. And so what did they say? Well, the Bible here is saying that if you were to sum up something that the prophets essentially said about the Messiah, they said, he shall be called a Nazarene. And what does that mean? Well, without getting into too much detail, the answer basically comes from knowing about the city of Nazareth itself. Because as for us in this room, we probably all have heard of the city of Nazareth now because of Jesus. And so we hear Nazareth as familiar, and therefore we may think it's always been somewhat of a known city. But the reality is, that is the opposite of the case. 
Because in actuality, Nazareth was an extremely obscure city. It was very small. And in fact, the city itself was never, not even once, mentioned in the whole Old Testament. And so this was basically nowheresville. Right? And back in ancient times, remember, where you came from was important. And it even in a way marked off who you were. Because back then, last names didn't exist. And so what specified who you were was either who, you, who your father was, right? like John, son of Zebedee, or where you were from, like Saul of Tarsus. And so descriptions back then mattered. And the point, therefore, that Matthew is making is that concerning Jesus, what's amazing is, okay, so think about it. So far in Matthew, we have that this Jesus is the Savior, the King, the Son of Abraham, the, the Son of Abraham, the blessing of the nations, God himself. We have him being incredibly worshipped by the Magi. And now, even so far this morning, we see that Jesus is the true Israel, that Jesus brings the new covenant. And so that's a lot, and a lot of great and lofty things. And now he, that Jesus, is about to go and live somewhere. He's about to spend many years growing up somewhere. And therefore, we would probably assume, well, being the king, who would he be? Well, Jesus of Jerusalem. Right? Or at least, Jesus of Bethlehem, the city of David. I mean, he's the king. And yet, as we all know, that is not how he's known in history, and intentionally so. Instead, who is he? Now and forever? Jesus of Nazareth. And hearing that, you get the point. Jesus spent the majority of his life in humility, in obscurity, growing up in Nowheresville. <laughs> Jesus of Nazareth. And why? Well, the Bible is saying to fulfill the Old Testament prophets. Because what did the prophets say about the coming Messiah? Well, yes, they said he'd, he'd be the king, he'd be the savior, and many lofty things like that. But also, do you know what they said? Well, they said that he'd be despised and scorned and not even recognized or esteemed. <laughs> he, he'd be the blessed king and he'd be the man of sorrows. He'd be the most important person to ever walk the earth and he'd be scorned and looked down upon. He'd be the savior and the suffering servant. He'd be the word of God. In the beginning was the word and yet he'd live most of his life quietly and unnoticed. He'd be God with us, but live most of his life as an unknown man. <laughs> or to say it another way, in short, the prophet said he'd be amazingly like from a city like Nazareth. <laughs> and so that's Jesus here. And that then matters for you and me because church, this is our Savior. And it is such a paradox, but it's beautiful and good news. And if we really think about it, this is what we'd want from our Savior. Because yes, Jesus is the King. He's perfect. He's worthy of worship. He's God with us. He is the Savior. But also, you know what? He is a true human being who knows what it's like to be one of us, to have sorrow, and he even knows what it's like to be obscure and unnoticed. <laughs> it's amazing. And not only that, but really the point is here that he decided to live about 90% of his human life like that. 
He, he didn't decide to spend most of his life in Jerusalem, which, which would have made sense. But instead, yes, he was born in Bethlehem, the city of David, as was predicted. And yes, he would eventually go and minister around all over the place and he'd die and rise near Jerusalem. But still, he decided to show us the beauty of humility and obscurity by living in Nazareth. And, and that matters for us because practically then, that then means that if we ever feel obscure, unimportant, unnoticed, amazingly, our Savior who loves us and cares for us, he even knows what that is like. He lived in Nazareth for three decades and amazingly, by his choice, the creator and the king of the universe is still even known today by the world over as Jesus of Nazareth. (laughs) And so that's our passage in the end of Matthew 2, church. And again, Bible passages like this maybe aren't the most famous or the most exciting, but I hope you're now seeing why they're here in God's word, why Matthew includes them in the gospel. And this, by the way, just so you know, is also why we here at ECC do expository preaching, right? Verse by verse, passage by passage. Because to be honest, if, if I were to only pick and choose what we teach each week, I'll just tell you, I would have easily maybe skipped by these or taught them super fast. But instead of that, by God's grace, we're able to go slowly through them. And although, yes, some of it is still maybe confusing to you still, what I hope we now see is we see here three huge things about Jesus, all of which are good news for us. Because first, again, we saw that Jesus is the true Israel. And so if you trust him, you can be sure you are in the people of God. And then second, we saw that Jesus brings the new covenant, which means that if you know him, you can be confident your sins are forgiven, you are being made new, and you know God now and forever because the new covenant is in Jesus. And then third and finally, we saw that our Savior even lived his life intentionally in obscurity for us, which gives us meaning and even contentment in our obscurity. And so church, that is our Jesus. And so so for us, let's now leave here not just knowing these things, but, but really trusting and loving Jesus more because of them. Let's be thankful for the gospel and now go out and live for the Savior of ours glory because he deserves it. Amen? Amen, let's pray.